This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Saddle Hunters, our brothers over at Tethered, continue to kill the game by releasing innovative products. They just recently put out the Eberhardt Series Saddle. They also put out the Menace Saddle, which is for our, our Husky brothers and sisters that are into saddle hunting that does but that said, I'll do just maybe a little bit better job of cupping your quote-unquote assets. But the thing that I'm most excited about is their recent release of the Tethered One Climbing Stick. Um, this thing is crazy light, crazy strong, and crazy quiet. I'm just going to cut to the chase here and give you some specs. Each stick weighs in at less than one pound. That includes your Dynalite rope attachment. Uh, a three-pack of these will weigh in at 2.7 pounds, which is ridiculously light. It's a 17-inch step-to-step uh, single stick uh, single stick height, and there's an 8.5-inch uh, step footbed, which gives you plenty of room for, for those of us folks with, with, with bigger feet. It's all made with aerospace-grade titanium and aluminum for construction. So if you'd like to learn more about Tether's innovative products, head over to tetherednation.com and check them out. This podcast is brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. Skull Brew Coffee roasts premium single-origin coffee guaranteed to deliver the freshest coffee directly to your doorstep. The kicker, they're 2% for conservation certified and donate 10% of their proceeds back to organizations who support the interests of our hunting community. So go to SkullBrewCoffee.com and pick up one of their three killer roasts and fuel your hunt and fill more tags with Skull Brew Coffee. Welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 201. Today, I'm joined by Troy Spooner of Michigan, and we're talking big woods, public land, and aggressive setups. So stay tuned. Alright, alright, alright. What is up everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. The, uh, the Super Bowl is almost uh, is almost upon us here. This is the the, the prime week um, when everything really kind of gets kicked off and, and ramped up. I've definitely seen 
a little bit more activity in some of my key locations, um, some that I might be monitoring with a with a uh, Exodus Render cell camera. I'm um, just so I can kind of keep tabs on it, you know, as a working stiff, um, not able to be out every day. So I have to kind of monitor places from afar, and that's really kind of how I use those. I, fi- I find, like, these key spots that I think are going to be good, um, let's say, you know, when, when pre-rut hits, you know, this past week, this coming week. Um, and what I do is I'll set up a, a cell camera on those spots. That way I can kind of see when it starts to heat up. And then when it starts to heat up, I know then I can I need to take some time off or I need to try to get out of work early a day or hunt a morning or whatever or whatever the case is. Some of the other places that I find throughout the course of the offseason when I'm scouting and stuff like that, I know those are going to be more, you know, boots on the ground type of places where I'm just going to have to walk, find the sign and, uh, and, 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 and hunt those that way. Um, some of these key locations where I know I have primary scrape areas next to bedding and stuff like that, I know it's just a matter of time until they turn on. And so I typically just stay out of those spots until they until they do turn on. And they're just the light switch is just starting to flip. Um, the one spot I hunted uh, this past weekend in the morning, um, it was really the only spot that I had that the wind was going to be decent for it. And the, that camera had been I, that one wasn't a cell camera. I, that camera had been completely dead. There was a camera that was close by, and I expected there to be a lot of activity on that one, but there was you know a handful of pictures in the past month and a half and really no, no bucks to speak of, at least none that were worth, worth, um, worth chasing and not so far from there, just kind of like on the other side of this bedding area, there's a cell camera that was set up, uh, over a primary scrape and truth be told, it's been dead for a while too. Um, no, literally no activity, which was surprising to me. Um, but the weather recently hasn't been great. And this next coming week, it's going to be a lot of rain. Um, but I'm recording this on Sunday. Like I always do these upfronts. And um, the weather shifted starting last night. So I was out last night, you know, Saturday evening. I was hunting the the one big deer that I have that I know is is around. Um, he's hitting a primary scrape area. I've missed him twice in daylight. Not missed him literally with a with an arrow, but um, we've we've seemed to be ships passing in the night. When I'm there, he's not. When he's when he's there, I'm not. Uh, he has been daylight active. Um, he's gone more. Um, I think what happened. I think early on he was hitting that scrape, that primary scrape area. And I think it was, you know, it was a little earlier in October. It was like the 15th through like the 20th, you know, he was hitting it and I was getting some daylight pictures of him. And, you know, I think what the, what the deal was is that he was bedded not far from there. And I think what is happening now is like, as we're getting here and, you know, like the, into prime time, I think he's expanding his range. And so he's not hitting it as frequently. And now he's showing up at different times of the day. Cause before he was hitting it pretty consistently at very similar times. And these are all new pieces to me. So I was trying to figure out what wins he was wanting to use to get in there. And by the time I figured out, you know, once I got a couple pictures of him and could start to put the puzzle pieces together of like, okay, he likes this wind, you know, this is when he's going to come through at this time of day. You know, he, at that point he started, I, I believe at least this is my hypothesis is that he started expanding his range because now I'm starting to see him come in at different times. Sometimes it's at night. Sometimes it's early in the morning. Sometimes he's coming from, um, you know, Southwest, sometimes he's coming from Northeast. It just, you know, it just, he's kind of, there's not a a discernible pattern necessarily, but I was going in to hunt him yesterday. And when I walked in, I found a bunch of fresh rubs. I found a bunch of fresh scrapes and I found, um, what I believe to be his track. Um, so I felt pretty good walking in. Um, you know, this is a kayak in spot. Uh, I'm not far off the water's edge to be honest with you and did a setup and nothing didn't show up got a no show didn't even see a deer in that one uh during that set um but you know i got down and uh like i said there's a i have a cell camera not far from that location and uh 
once I got down and, and kayaked out, I think I got down like 645. I think maybe I walked out. And uh, by the time I got to my boat, it might have been seven, a little bit after seven until I got into the boat and started, you know, paddling out. Um, cell camera goes off and, you know, two deer hit a, a, a scrape that was very close by to where I was to where I was set up. So I think the good news is, is like I'm because like what I know, I guess what I'll say is this what I know for. I won't say a fact or 100 percent because nothing's ever 100 percent, but I'm leaving very little to no kind of impact. I won't say no because I, of course, have impact. I just don't think they're crossing um, my scent trail. Um, so my my in and out, my my access and my exit is pretty slick in this spot because I've not seen like you know a change to deer behavior per se. Um, you know, I'm not even crossing where I'm expecting them to come from. Um, you know, I'm kind of basically beelining it from the point where I put my kayak through some brush and directly into, um, directly into where I'm climbing into a tree and there are deer trails that are in there, but they're all running parallel to where I'm walking. And so they're basically running a, you know, side by side to where I'm walking and I'm being mindful not to, now could they cross like in certain spots? Sure they could, but the predominant area where I've seen sign along the edge as I'm walking to the tree, um, all that stuff is kind of parallel to how I'm walking. So I feel pretty confident about the, about the access I have. So truth of the matter is, is the weather's going to get good. It's actually really good today. It's a bummer. You can't hunt in Pennsylvania because literally, um, you know, one of the cell cams I have out, like it's been dead for a while. And all of a sudden this morning it started, it started blowing up at like seven 30. Um, so this cold front's definitely got them moving. It couldn't have come at a better time. You know, the, the last week of October, uh, the only bummer is there's going to be some rain. Um, so if if you're, if not a fan of rain this week in PA might be kind of tough for you. I think Wednesday is going to be pretty good. So I think that's what my plan is. I think I'm going to try to get out and, and possibly do a morning hunt and maybe even evening hunt. I have to work Wednesday. Um, one last hunt for this deer, uh, at least during, you know, leading into prime time, um, is all I'm probably going to have for him. Um, reason being is I leave for my Midwest trip on, on Friday and then I'll be gone for two weeks and I think I'll be returning around the 15th. So uh, if I get home in time, I might be able to hunt that 16th, that Sunday It's the one Sunday of archery season that the game commission is letting us hunt this year. Um, so, you know, if, if he's still around and I, and I have a good idea that he's still around, um, I may come back and try to hunt that day here as well to see if I can't close that chapter. Otherwise it'll be on to late season for, for him. Um, and then I'm really kind of at a loss at that point. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure what'll be happening. So with that, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap this up front up and try to get into this, uh, into this session, got a cool show for you guys today. Um, or actually before I do that, just as I'm leaving for this trip, uh, you know, I'll be in, in Missouri and an, uh, an undisclosed location as I keep referring to it as, um, I'm going to try as I do every year to put out, you know, I'm not going to guarantee a podcast a day as like a, as a, as a rut log necessarily. Um, I'm going to try to do one every other day if I can, there's going to probably be a little bit more travel for me involved in this. Cause I might have to jump to a couple of different public pieces. Cause the Missouri hunt is going to be 100% freelance hunting. I've looked at it on, on, a, on a map, but I've yet to, I've never set boots on the ground and I have two pieces. I'm really kind of, kind of looking at. So, um, and I'm going to be living out of the trailer for this whole trip. So I'm not going to have, um, you know, consistent Wi-Fi. It's going to be all based off of using the hotspot on my phone and stuff like that to get stuff done. So I'm just not sure how good my service and stuff is going to be. So I might not be as consistent with the rut log this year. I'm going to do my damnedest, uh, damnedest to get um, one up at least every other day uh, to keep you guys in the loop. And uh, send me a message and let me know what you think of them. Do you guys dig the rut log? Do you not dig the rut log? Should I do it? Should I not do it? You know, uh, let me know what you guys think. But today on the show, got a really cool show for you today. Have uh, a gentleman by the name of Troy Spooner. 
uh, he's a he's a good buddy with uh, Todd Hovel, um, who I had on uh, a few few months ago. And in full disclosure, um, this podcast with Troy had been recorded a few weeks ago. I was recording some episodes and had some of the DIY report things with Dan and now with Steve to get out. And so it just took me a little bit of time to get this episode out. Um, but Troy is from Michigan, uh, public land hunter, hunts a lot of big woods. Truthfully, Troy's hunted a lot of places. So he's got a lot of, a lot of great experience from the ground, from elevated sets, hunting aggressive. You know, he's, he's, uh, of the, um, I won't say the, the Dan Enfault tree necessarily, but he's very much of the same mindset. And he, he refers to Dan and, 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 and the Wenzels, uh, when we, when we talk a little bit about thermals and, 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 and playing with wind and stuff like that. Um, you know, Troy's a, uh, a normal guy, uh, by all accounts, he's a family guy, you know, normal job. And so he's just like the rest of us. Um, you know, he's a white tail nut, but has a lot of things to kind of balance. And we, and we also definitely talk about, about that and how you balance those things. So hope you guys dig the show as always. Thank you all for listening and good luck as we enter prime time. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the truth from the stand deer hunting podcast. And today I am joined by a fellow that I actually learned of this of this gentleman from Todd Hovel. If you remember back a couple months ago, I had Todd on, and we were talking big woods, you know, hunting, you know, big woods bucks, and particularly particularly in the in the north. And uh, after we got done, he was like, "Hey, he's like, you know, who's you know, someone you should have on the the show sometime." And he he mentioned this gentleman's name, and so I uh, I watched some videos that you had on YouTube, and then I did a little investigating on you, as I always like to do with folks I have on the show. And uh, I thought, man, this dude seems like a guy I should have on the show. And he, this is none other than Mr. Troy Spooner. What's going on, buddy? Hey, it's good. How you been? I've been good, man. I'm hanging in there. I know we were just talking uh, off the off the record button for a little bit, just getting geared up for the season. I'm all I'm all mixed up on what day it is because I'm really just thinking about trying to drag some bucks out out of these uh, pieces of public and hoping for some kayak success this year and some water access. That's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. No, I usually, this time of year, I kind of get wound up too. I, uh, we had a dinner for my sister-in-law we had run to tonight, but I left the office, ran home and I've got some, uh, climbing sticks. I hung those up and put some new paint on them and so forth. And so right now it's just kind of, I don't know, it's like the anticipation phase where you're kind of fine tuning things and, um, you know, it's, it's like, I'm all wound up. Yeah. I can't wait for the day to drop where I can go kind of chill out and just hang off the side of a tree for a while. I know. I hear you, man. And especially we got a nice little cold snap here uh, today where it was down. I think the low was 49 degrees and I woke up this morning. It was still about 49 when I got up, walked outside mm-hmm. and it was like, oh man, I was like, this feels like, this feels like hunting weather. I was like, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. You know, so fortunately for me, yeah. I've got, you know, as we're recording this podcast, I think I've got four days left before I can go climb into a tree and I have a pretty good spot kind of picked out and, and hoping for, uh, hoping for some success, but I appreciate you coming on. Um, as I always like to do to kind of kick these things off, man, I always like to just get a sense of, you know, where guys are coming from, you know, what they do for a living, just cause you know, a lot of what I do on this show, you know, what we talk about a lot is just a lot of DIY stuff, just regular guys that like to get after it and you kind of fit that mold. So if you wouldn't mind, Tell the folks at home, you know, a little bit about you, where you're from, what you do for a living. Sure. Um, born and raised predominantly in Michigan here. I lived in Nebraska for about a two-year stint as a kid. But born and raised in Michigan here, uh, southern Michigan, and then uh, moved over to the Holland area, which is, um, I guess, to be on the west coast, right along Lake Michigan here, uh, when I was about, I guess, about 12 years old and lived here ever since. But, uh, yeah, born and raised here, hunted here, 
my whole life. I've had a few stints, you know, forays to other states to hunt. Um, I'm a financial advisor. I own my own practice, which gives me, affords me a little bit more luxury, I guess, to, you know, kind of clear my, clear my plate from time to time if I need to go uh, sit in the woods. And so, uh, you know, you work when you work and, and work hard and stay focused so you can have a little time off. But, um, yeah, married, uh, three kids, 22, 18, and 16. So, you know, just kind of bringing us up through those busy years of life where I think we're going to be empty nesters here in a few years. And then I can really, <laughs> you know, get back to, to dedicate more of my free time, you know, back to sitting in the woods instead of, uh, you know, coaching and kind of doing all the parenting stuff but i, I know i'm gonna miss that for right, sure right but you know it's all phases in life so that's right man how so that's that's interesting man because like a lot that's one thing you know a, a lot of guys that listen to this show or just a lot of my buddies you know and stuff like that like we're all kind of normal guys families married kids and just similar to what you're kind of talking about you know how did you always kind of balance that you know as you as your kids kind of you know grew up and stuff like that you know because there's obviously you want to be there for the kids and you try to enjoy that time. Cause it's, it's fleeting, right? Anyone who has, mm -hmm. you know, I have a daughter, she's 12. Right. And I kind of look back at time. I'm like, man, I just can't believe where the time went that she's 12 years old now. Um, and so you try to yeah. embrace those moments and be as, as present as you possibly can. But there's also that kind of part of you that like, I always tell my wife, like she knows, like she can see it in me and she sees me start to like get fidgety and, and, and stuff like that. And yeah. she'll just like, there'll be a day and she just looks at me. She'll be like, you need to go. You know, like, yeah, she's like, you need to go be in the woods. You need to. And I always say, like, I, I start to crave an adventure. I, I start to crave, like, jumping into something that's very unknown or whatever, you know. And so right. how, how did you kind of balance the family with like that, that pool that the that the, that the timber always kind of has on us? Yeah, well, and don't get me wrong. Like every year we, we have our moments, obviously, um, where you got to flip that coin and decide what's more important that day. But, um, you know. I guess we dated since we were 14 years old. So she knew me when I was a reckless kid and that's all I did was right. head to the woods, um, to becoming a, a father and then having a balanced time. And believe me, when the kids were, you know, infants, I definitely was not around the house much. I was in the woods all the time. We have a lot of those pictures where daddy's holding a buck and there's, you know, the baby in the, in the <laughs> right. onesie sitting on the buck thing. Right. Um, but I, I got to, like be honest with you here i i took a different approach like i hunted hard killed a lot of nice deer up until you know my kids were old enough where they could do youth football and soccer and those things and and then kind of took a back seat and i was involved in coaching a uh, better part of the year i mean the last child at home now is my 16 year old daughter so i'm through the football years with my boys mm -hmm. um they're out of the house and she is in a lacrosse, which thank God is a spring sport. So right. now like I've been able to re retool and get refocused more on hunting, but no. So what it was, it, it, there was like a real fine balancing act there where a lot of times I would sacrifice, you know, hunt maybe the first three or four days of the season. If I had a good deer found during bow season, but then kind of chill out and kind of save those days for closer to the rut. Mm -hmm. And then when it came right down to just getting out and hardcore hunting, um, you know, that's when I started to really gravitate to the big woods where I got away from phones ringing and, and people calling you and, and asking you to do things. And I was off the grid. I mean, right. we were in the UP or up in the wilds of Canada, Ontario, off the grid, no phone service in the woods, you know, deliberately hunting 
during daylight hours. And so I think personally, that's how I made up for it was just more intensity and shorter periods of time. Um, the flip side of that obviously is when you're going to go do a, a hunt in the UP, that's, you know, seven hours from where you live or in Canada, that's 16 hours from where you live, you know, forces you to spend a lot more time studying uh, aerials and topos and, you know, really trying to dial down to determine where you need to focus your time. Cause otherwise you're looking for a needle in a haystack. So you get pretty good at figuring that out, I guess, and just being a lot more precise. Let's right. put it that way. That's interesting, man. Like, so let's touch on that. I mean, there's, I have a bunch of stuff I want to kind of get to and ask you, but like, since we're kind of mm-hmm. hitting on some of this stuff, you know, do you think, you know, whenever you, you know, became a dad, right. And you had to kind of mm-hmm. look at hunting maybe a little bit differently. And maybe, maybe it was whenever your kids got a little older. Cause I kind of recognize that like, you know, early child kind of phase where it's, there's certain things you need to be there for or, or that you're doing, but they're not, you know, into, into sports quite yet. And like those things are like the extracurricular that's beyond parenting of your normal raising a child. It's the things what's helping them kind of grow and explore and find the things that they're sure. going to like and be passionate about. Um, yeah. Did it, did it force you to hunt? smarter and maybe more strategic because you had limited time. Yep. And do you feel like, I'm just curious, was your success rate higher during that time? Just, you know, because you had to be more focused um, or it was there a Delta yeah. there or not? Well, no, I think it, there's a little bit of both. I think when they were really young as infants, um, you know, obviously I couldn't just bail out on her and leave her home by herself. So you had to be very precise about when it was okay to kind of put your foot on the gas and go do some things. So what I tended to find is, um, you know, a lot more winter scouting. I, I track deer. I'm sure you and Todd talked about that. Yep. So the cool thing about tracking deer is you're learning about bucks that you don't kill while you're hunting them, um, in a pretty intimate fashion. Cause you know, you're following every step they, they make and you see where they pee, where they poop, where they bed, where they rub, you know, the whole deal. Mm-hmm. So you kind of, your scouting is your hunting it's like active scouting and you store that away. So then when you go back in the spring, um, and this is going to sound pretty simple, but you go back in the spring, you walk through the same areas, look for the tracks that the snow is melted in the mud. And if you found out where he was bedding, obviously you start there, but it gives you a little bit of a head start. So you're not wasting as much time, mm-hmm. you know, come spring and try to get as many of those deer figured out as you can. So come fall, you know, you're basically looking at your wind direction and, saying, okay, I'm going to grab my stand and I'm going to slip into that spot and I'm going to, you know, hang and hunt here tonight and Hmm. hopefully get a crack at them. Where when I was younger, um, I hunted 80% of the time and scouted 20%. Now I scout, you know, 80% of the time and hunt 20%. I think you just become smarter in how you approach hunting. Right. So yeah, being a dad at home with kids, I would, I would process that and say, you know, enjoy the time with your wife and kids because you can't buy it back. Right. Um, yeah. You know, I had, well, I guess we're going to be in depth. I'll tell you a couple of quick stories here. So I broke my neck riding a horse. My wife and daughter got horses and we thought this would be a great thing to be a cowboy, right? So we all got <laughs> horses and I'm not a cowboy. I'll be honest with you. It looks cool on TV, but it's right. it's not, I'm not suited for it. So I was bucked off and I broke my neck in three places and was like, probably should have been paralyzed. It was the same break that Christopher Reeves had. The only thing is his bone fragments went into his column. Mine went out. Um, So after an emergency surgery and was in a neck brace, 
and a fusion and all sorts of stuff, um, some numbness in my arm. You know, that took almost a year to fully recover. So that was in that stretch where I was being a dad and coaching and stuff. So that set me back a little bit further. But it sure made you cherish those few moments you got in the woods. Mm -hmm. Let's put it that way. Um, It sure makes you cherish the moments that you are coaching your kid and holding your wife's hand because there could be a day where you can't do that. Um, And then two years ago, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. So I had that emergency surgery, had the brain tumor removed. And that was the Monday after Thanksgiving, I went into surgery. So that pretty much screwed up the whole last part of that season. Uh, the recovery into spring, um, because that went, the recovery went horrible too. And I ended up back in the ICU. So the crazy thing is, you know, you go from hunting like crazy when you're young, there's nothing else you'd rather do. You meet the lady of your dreams, you get married, you have this family and yeah, you have to kind of parcel your time. But I guess if I could give anybody advice, listening to this podcast is like, you know, parcel your time. So you're spending as much with your family as you can, because you know, we can hunt until we're 80, 90 years old, assuming we can still move. But when your kids move out of the house, I mean, they're gone. Like they're off on their way and you did everything you could at that point in time to shape them as individuals and people. So as long as you plant the seeds right, you know, take the kids in the woods with you, take them scout and make it fun. Hopefully as you're coming through the process, even though you're sacrificing some hunting time, you're building a bond with you and your child that will carry into the future that they're going to want to come hunt with you, you know, when you're older. So, right. um, so with, I guess where I was going with that, with all those setbacks, you know, I'm finally realigned at this point right now. And my wife is finally saying like, okay, you did spend the time with the kids. You did a good job. You've had some setbacks, like here's your wings, <laughs> right. head back to the woods and do what you want to do. Right. So it's nice because if you do it right, your wife won't resent you. Your kids won't resent you. Um, but you're the only person that can figure out what that balance is. But I, I guess I always say like, you know, try to think of them first, think of hunting second, even though it's really tough, like been there, yeah. done that. It's super tough. Um, yeah. no, I, and it, it will work out for all the young dads. Listen, it will work out. It's not the end of the world. Just hunt smarter, not harder. Yeah. I think for, for me, it, it definitely made me, um, I think more, um, more strategic, you know, and I, I, I plan more for the hunts, you know, so, uh, so to speak. I, and I shouldn't say I plan more cause I always kind of plan, but I plan with more intent, I think. Right. Um, and I, I will agree with you that like, you know, it, it's definitely more of a, a scouting game and I'll do a lot of that, you know, in the, you know, in the, in the spring. And, and I, I scout kind of, I speed scout is what I like to do. It's like, I'll kind of look at an area, like look at the maps and I'll, I'll pick out like the 10% that's probably worth hunting. And I'll scout only yep. that 10, the, only that 10%. And it might only take me four hours or five hours or however long. And I'll quickly realize whether or not it's a place I'm going to spend any time or not. And then I'm not spending days upon days upon days, you know, doing mm-hmm. that away from, away from the family. And then once I have you know, whatever it is, maybe I have eight, 10 spots kind of picked out. You know, I know that these general areas are going to be pretty decent. Uh, I go look for hot sign on the days where my wind conditions are right to hunt those places. And if they're not, then I don't go, you know, it's like, it's, yep. it's, it's kind of that approach. So there's definitely days where I have, you know, burner spots where I just want to go out and sit in the woods. And even if it's a bad wind day, it's like, I'll go sit a spot and maybe try to kill a doe or even just go out and you know, there's been plenty of times when I've gone out and just known like, Hey, there's probably a 10% chance I'm even going to see anything today, but I just want to be in a tree, you know, and you you have, you have some of those, some of those places as well, because 
I think part of it too, you know, especially whenever you have, you know, family responsibilities and stuff like that is, you know, you kind of owe it to them too, to make sure you're doing the things you need to do to keep yourself right. Um, to mm-hmm. be that way when you are with them, you know, that you're there, you're actually there, you know, cause I think that yeah, that's, oh, yeah. there's a part of Absolutely. that too. You hit the nail on the head. Cause we had plenty of times where my wife and I would, you're out to dinner or whatever. And you know, you're thinking of, you know, what stand you should be in and this and, and like, she can tell, like she's looking at you and you're, you're not even in the conversation. Yeah. You probably didn't even hear what she said. So yeah. yeah, I think being very purposeful, you know, with your time is highly important, not only for a good marriage, but to be a good father, but just to be a good human being. And then I think because you are more purposeful, your hunting time will be more productive. Yeah. I think it just all comes down to focus, right? Whenever you're in something, mm-hmm. be, be, be all in it and, all your, in. and your results yep. will, be, will be that much better. So with that, yeah, man, absolutely. you know, I, I know you hunt predominantly public lands. Um, you know, mm-hmm. ha, have you always, has this kind of been always the case for you? Is it, was it all, was it a preference or was it kind of, did it start off as just like a requirement because there was, you didn't have access to, to private or how, you know, talk me through, I think, you know, how you kind of, came to kind of fall in love with, with public lands and more specifically big woods. Yeah. Well, I was kind of ruined at a young age because my dad had, when I started hunting when I was like eight, um, when I say hunting, like, I think I had a little 20 pound Pearson, um, compound that had the old rubber finger things that you grab to pull the string back. And my dad had, um, outfitted these little, I even think they were cedar arrows at the time with like a two blade razor head, but I could only carry one arrow with me. Um, and I think really the reason that ended up that way is because it was like, well, the kids are with you tonight and he wanted to be in the woods. So he's like, okay, like here, you go sit on that stump and I'll, I'll come, you know, pick you up on the way out. But so like sort of started dabbling with hunting at probably eight years old between the BB guns and, you know, a bow. Um, but I was, I say I was sort of ruined because he had access to probably when I look back now, some of the best hunting in the state of Michigan. Um, it was down in Calhoun County. It was the largest contiguous block of land. When you look at a map, there was like a bird sanctuary on one end that was like 1100 acres of no hunting. And, and so for a kid, like you walked in and there were definitely defined deer trails, Oak ridges, rub scrapes, like everything you read about in a magazine. Um, so started like learning there. And when I say learning, it was more like just sit on the stump and watch this trail. And, and so did that up until we moved to Nebraska. We moved to Nebraska when I was like 10. So for two years, I did that. We lived in Nebraska for two years, uh, Kearney, Nebraska, and there were no trees except unless you were right along the Platte River. We didn't deer hunt for those two years out there. We just bird hunted, pheasant hunted. Um, my dad got transferred back to Michigan. So we moved to Holland, Michigan, right here on the coast and had no access to private anything, but we've got the Allegan state game area, which is just down the road. And I think that's like 19,000 acres of public land with a river bottom and some swamp. And then if you look at a map of Michigan, you know, once you get North of like Cadillac, Michigan, Mm -hmm. it's predominantly uh, dotted with state forest, you know, Manistee national forest. I think uh, over on the, the East side is the Huron. And then you get to the UP and the majority of the UP is natural forest too, or national forest too. So, um, by default, when we moved back here, I just was thrown into the public land mix and had to sort of figure it out. And going from where deer sign was abundant and easy to read and the deer numbers were high to public land, that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. It sure forced you to really kind of 
dial down and start to be more of a student. Right. Um, so, but so, I was like a nerdy, I was, a, I was a nerdy kid. I'll admit in middle school, because when everyone else went out for recess, I would eat my lunch as quick as I could go to the library. And I would look at deer hunting articles from like outdoor life and sports <laughs> field magazine. Um, I was probably the only, you know, 10 year old kid with a year long subscription to deer and deer hunting and, um, <laughs> That's awesome. In North American whitetail. And I would read them cover to cover. Like, That's awesome. And I'd have stacks of them in my room. But so I was just dedicated to like learning the craft of whitetail hunting and trying to be as good as I possibly could be. And that's kind of kind of what happened. And then, yeah, through default, I had to hunt public ground. Um, and it was horrible hunting back then, um, as Pennsylvania used to be, too, because yeah. everybody shot everything. Um, you know, if you saw one two and a half year old buck during the whole season it was something to talk about because everything was a spike four or six point so um it's definitely it's been like to go from really really good hunting and not knowing anything to go to really bad hunting and having a thirst or or a want to know did force me to like figure it out right so in those early years right you know when you started kind of figuring out or trying to figure out how you know hunting hunting public you know land and, and so forth like what were some of the most valuable lessons for you very, very early on that you, that you keep with you today? Cause I think that, you know, as we go through these learning curves, right. And we develop as hunters and, and we start reaching for whatever goals someone might have, you know, someone that might just be to see deer. And I'm not saying that anyone's goal is right or wrong. We all have them and they're, and they're different, but knowing that you're kind of a dedicated, you know, diehard hunter from like an early age, I think certain experiences, you know, hold more weight as you get, as you get older. Right. So I can think mm-hmm, of, for mm-hmm. me, you know, some very early experiences that I had that, you know, they were experiences and I'm glad my dad took me to have them or, you know, and then I can think of some very specifically that I remember now looking back, knowing more than I knew then and how valuable that experience was. And for me, the one was my dad took me, you know, one time on a stock whenever it was really wet out and raining. He wasn't a big bow hunter, uh, but whenever he would get the right kind of rainy or windy conditions, we mainly gun hunted, you know, growing up. And, uh, and we never hunted from elevated platforms. We always hunted from the ground. I never hunted from an elevated platform until I was probably in my thirties. And, you know, he, he was into shooting a recurve. And so there was a windy wet day out and he was like, Hey, I think I know where there's a couple of deer bedded. He's like, do you want to come with me? I want to, I'm going to stalk one, you know? And I was like, sure. So I went with him and just kind of watched how we used the wind and got, you know, we ended up getting up on this buck and it was bedded on the the edge of this um, the edge of this Ridge, kind of that classic one third that I knew nothing about then, but know now, you know what I mean? And he was bedded there and, yeah. and we were able to kind of play the wind and get right up onto him from about 10 yards. Now he wasn't a big deer. And so my dad never took the shot, but it was just, that sticks in my mind because it was probably, it was the first time I'd ever st- been that close to a bedded deer on a purposeful stock or on a hunt. And so I think back right. now, knowing what I know now about hunting and how important it is for me to find bedding and stuff like that. I always kind of think mm-hmm. back on that now as like a really kind of key moment um, that I had that I didn't probably recognize at the moment. So I'm curious for you, what are some of those mm-hmm. moments that you had that were really kind of like watershed learning opportunities or learning moments that you still carry with you? Mm-hmm. Well, so when we were young, you know, that eight, eight, and I got a brother that's a year older than me. So eight, nine on opening day of gun season in Michigan, which has always been historically November 15th my dad would flip a coin the night before and whoever won the coin toss got to go with him on opening day and sit. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, 
as luck would have it, I was the kid. It seems like they had the lucky rabbits, but because whenever I would win the coin toss and go with them, you know, he would kill a deer. And my brother would go with them and they would never see a deer. And it was always rainy and miserable and horrible conditions. But um, what I remember about those the most is, you know, obviously the smell of the woods and the, the skunk scent on his boots, but was he was always trying to go in further to get away from other hunters. Um, and that really stuck in my head. You know, we always had to be there an hour early. We always had to walk further, had to be quiet. Um, had to sit patient all day, turn your head slow, move slow. So it was more of getting in the mindset that, you know, um, this isn't just a walk in the woods and you have to change the way you think to kind of zone into becoming a hunter. And then the other thing obviously was getting away from the pressure. Like, I don't know if he did that just because, you know, he felt there was bigger deer in further. Cause I mean, to be very honest with you, like he's killed a couple of okay bucks, but nothing really to write home about. Right. Um, I almost think he just liked the solitude, you know, he just liked getting away from people. Um, cause he was busy at his everyday job, but by default, then obviously if you seek the solitude, that's what, you know, the bucks are trying to do too, the yeah. mature bucks. Yeah. So for me, like those lessons were, you know, go in deeper, you know, sit all day, be prepared, um, you know, be quiet, pay attention to what you're doing. Um, my brother ended up giving up whitetail hunting and gravitating to duck hunting because he was more of a fidgety kind of guy. And I think he didn't really like being quiet and so forth. And quite frankly, they just didn't have luck when he was with them. So he always got wet and froze to death. Um, <laughs> so you can look at the same exact experience both of us had, but there was a fork in the road where we went two different directions and I was more, you know, pulled towards the solitude of being a, a whitetail hunter. Um, you know, where it's, you get out of it, what you put in it. And he was more drawn to like the camaraderie and where you don't have to necessarily be quiet and you actually are rewarded to make noise, right. uh, you know, when you hunt. So for me, that was it. And that kind of carried over because when we got to hunt Allegan here, the Allegan forest, um, you know, you'd get in the woods there. And like, I had a couple of times where I heard, um, slugs, you know, ticking through the brush around me as people would, as we used to call them, the red coats on opening day would unload on deer in there. Mm -hmm. And so that really taught me there again, it reemphasized to get the heck away from as many people as you can and, and seek solitude, which is why I think I then later in life gravitated, you know, even further from that to the big woods, um, you know, UP, Canada, um, wilderness type of a hunting situation. Right. Right. Yeah. That's interesting, man. I mean, did that was your, like, was your upbringing with hunting, was there, you know, you should, your dad obviously was, was a hunter and into the outdoors, but was he, you know, a, a tactician or a, a strategist when it came to, to deer hunting, or was it more of, you know, um, how hunting I think often is in hunting heritage states where it's just more of like the camaraderie and to get out. Cause that was kind of my experience. Like my dad, when, yeah. I, when I talk to my dad now, if we, it, you know, when we, we get limited opportunities to hunt together just because we don't live near each other. But when we do, it's like, I'll kind of explain like where I think he should be and stuff like that. And he's like, you just tell me where to go. He's like, I can't think about the wind and the thermals and all this stuff. He's like, you just tell me where you want me to sit, you know? And so he was never into that so much. He was more into, um, you know, I'll say this, what I got from my dad was, um, was a good moral and, and ethical compass that was very mm -hmm. much built on the, the outdoors and having an appreciation for the natural world. 
that was probably more mm-hmm. so what I got from my dad than it was how to be a good hunter. It was how to be a good mm-hmm. person that was all built off of the foundation of being an outdoorsman. You know, so I'm just curious to like how, what your introduction was, was it, was there strategy, was there tactics or was it kind of that similar upbringing? No, I think it was very similar. Um, you know, we, uh, as a family, we were always taught that, you know, you work hard and there's chores to get done and you get stuff done and then you can go have fun. So I think, you know, in a way, um, you know, the hunting thing almost was a little bit of a reward for us. Mm. Like if we did things well, we got to go, go hunt with him. So we were always, you know, vying for that golden ring or that brass ring to be able to go. But he, um, personally, you know, he grew up on a farm and back then deer hunting was just, you know, you went to the local hardware store the night before and you bought whatever, you know, rifled slugs are on sale and you put them in your pheasant gun and you walked out and stood in a fence row and, you know, saw what ran down the fence row. I think his first buck he ever killed, which was ironically the biggest buck of his life. He was 12 and it was like a 18 inch eight point that dressed it, uh, 212 pounds and he shot it with a single shot 20 gauge slug at like a hundred yards <laughs> um you know so for them hunting was utilitarian it was yeah. it was an an annual thing that guys just did it was a male camaraderie you just all went and stuffed your guns with slugs and you all like went out and hunted then you met at the farm and had coffee and breakfast and then you just went back out in the afternoon and so yeah, I think as a kid, you know, you like to emulate stuff that your your father does. You look up to your father, and so when it came time to hunt, it was like, well, we're we're gonna hunt. You know, that looks right. cool, and you know, let's go give it a whirl. But yeah, as far as scouting and reading sign, I mean, he knew what tracks were and what rubs were and scrapes, but there was never real any literal interpretation to the extent that we use nowadays. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment. The clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Right. Yeah. I totally agree with you. I, I had a very, very similar, similar experience. So, so with that, I want to start getting more into like the, the, the tactics and the strategies, you know, kind of behind like how you approach a hunt. So what I want to do is just kind of jump to, to talking about how you approach learning a piece of public, you know, and maybe you, we can use, you know, when you moved and you had to kind of investigate this, you know, these, these new public lands and stuff like that and, and reacquaint yourself mm-hmm. with it. You know, I guess let's start with your off season. You know, what are you mm-hmm. typically doing during the off season? Are you doing, is it a ton of scouting? Are you looking, are you prioritizing betting? I know you're hunting big woods, so it's like, I'm not sure if you're, you're mainly just tracking, you know, I, I know. And just from, mm-hmm. I'll be honest. And I have limited knowledge when it comes to tracking, probably the most I've learned about tracking is when I spoke with Todd and what it seems mm-hmm. like is that early in the year, like during ah. bow season, like that's a challenge, right? To track on dry ground. And so it's really a game that you play whenever you get some snow. So I'm really curious about right. bow season, how you're kind of approaching that in the big woods. Yeah. So um, did you get the video I sent you today? I, uh, I texted you a video. I did, video? yes. Okay. So I'm going to use that. I'm going to frame that as an example. And for folks listening, what I sent, uh, what I sent them today is um, it was one of my spring scouting sessions 
and I'm hoping to have that hung on our website here soon. I need to revamp that. But where I had basically the night before used an Onyx map, found an old grown over cut, clear cut, um, dropped a pin in the clear cut and said, I need to go back to that corner of the cut and scout. The next morning, um, had the video camera and stuff with me, went, walked through the cut, got to where I dropped the pin and was looking at my, my Onyx map. I'm like, yep, I'm right where I need to be here, where I would expect a buck to be. Turned to my left, and I could see bones and antlers sticking up. And then I fired the camera up and started filming. Um, you know, it, it uh, but that's how I scout. Like, what I sent you this morning, I know they can't see it, but um, is how I scout. So to take you through the process, you know, um, when I find, this is what I look for. When I look for a new piece of public ground, I want it to have three things. Um, it's got to have cover. And the thicker the cover, the better, because obviously that deters hunters. The one thing I do like, because our gun seasons in Michigan, we have a tremendous amount of gun hunting pressure, but it's usually for like the first three days. And then it really tails off. Like people come up, you know, they, they rent motels or stay wherever they're going to stay. They hunt like three days or the first, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And a lot of times you never see them again. That's their annual thing and they're done. So the one thing I realized from an early age is, you know, for a buck to grow big, it needs, obviously it needs cover. Um, so it can, you know, get away from the hunt pressure, but it's going to need age. So it's got to survive a few seasons. And then genetics are also a plus too. And anywhere in Southern Michigan, I don't care where you're at, the food is abundant. Um, you know, there's always ag a few miles away. If you want to, a buck wants to venture, it can find ag. Last year, there were so many acorns that literally some spots are like ankle deep on the forest floor. So a buck could, you know, bed in a sanctuary and walk a hundred yards in any direction, typically fill up on acorns if you wanted and go lay back down under the cover of darkness. And there was no real, you know, reason to move during daylight unless it was really hot and needed to go for water or it was a rut and it was following does. So when I look at a map, one of the first things I want to look at is I want to look at, um, Obviously, it's got to be public. Second thing I look at is when you look at, do you use Onyx Maps? I do. You, what yep. program do you use? Okay. Yep. So Onyx is really, it's it's good for the most part. It can get you probably, I would say, 80% there. But sometimes what you see on Onyx and what you see in person doesn't look the same. Yeah. I don't know if the maps aren't always updated. Um, but you can tell cover density. Typically, you can see edges and you can see cover density. You can see you know, where a water source snakes through the woods or you can see a swamp is the section has to have a, a thicket somewhere in that section has to be that magic thicket. So that's the first thing. So I might, you know, go on a, a look at Onyx and look at my Atlas and I'll circle those pieces that are public that look like there's probably good potential, you know, for thick cover. The next thing I'll do then is then I'll go and I'll use a USGS map. So for those of you that aren't familiar with that term, a USGS map is a, a topo map. So it's going to show you where your uh, hills and valleys are. Um, it's going to show you, you know, elevation. So then I'll cross-reference that with elevation. And if I can find those cuts that maybe have a ridge that runs through the thick stuff, then I'll, I'll maybe put a star on that one. Because now I have some cover out there where a buck can use some thermals or gain like a visual advantage when he's bedding. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then if there's a water source that's really close to that, that's even another plus because we all know in the summer when it's 90 degrees, um, you know, deer have to drink. And if the nearest water source is a mile away, that's going to be a problem. I want, I, what I want is I, after doing this so many years, in my opinion, the best bucks I've found are bucks living where they have ample cover, a good water source close, and there's some terrain elevations where they could take advantage of thermals rather than just flat terrain. And if those three things are there, I found out more times than not, there's typically a good buck in there that's worth hunting. Right. So um, if it has all three of those things, then I prioritize scouting it. Now, so what I would do, our season ends January 1st. I'll have all these spots figured out, you know, on the map. And if I did track deer in November and December, when I say track them, get on the track and follow them and hunt them. So people want to refer to probably Todd's podcast to learn more about that, but track the deer. And the cool thing about tracking a deer, and you can do the same thing in January. I, I don't care if you have snow and I'm going to say this, people are going to say, well, what does he mean? But it's almost cheating. And the reason I say that is because, you know, we can go find all of this deer sign, you know, when we're spring scouting and there's no snow on the ground, but there's still that element. We're not really sure exactly how he's using the terrain. We think he's using it a certain way, right? but we're not entirely sure because we really don't know what all the exact thermal, um, you know, the, the thermal cones are or the swirling or eddying of the wind out there, but the deer do because they live there every day. Right. So when you get on a track in the snow and you follow that undisturbed deer, it's just on a bedding feeding pattern. What I've noticed, does wander. Does will wander to the left and the right, and they'll feed a little here and fart around here and go there. Bucks, mature bucks are very deliberate. They don't waste an ounce of energy doing anything other than what their true intention is. And I said this on another podcast. It's kind of the difference between how my wife and I shop. She shops, <laughs> so she goes all yeah. over the store like haphazard, right? right? When I show up at Lowe's, I know exactly what aisle the item is I need. I go straight to it. I get the item off the rack. I pay for it. and I'm gone. Right. Yep. So I feel a mature buck does the same thing other than maybe a short period in the run. And I still think a mature buck in the rut is still very deliberate. Mm -hmm. um, so when you're tracking these bucks in the snow, you know, you take your onyx and you follow your track. And I don't care if I jump the buck in January. Um, it's even better if I jump them because then I'm going to go and I'm going to say, okay, why was he bedding here? What wind direction was he laying here in? Which direction was he facing? How did he see me? How did he enter and exit the bed? And then once I jump him, I'm going to wait a half hour or so. And then I'm going to follow the track that he exited the bed from because I want to see how did he react to pressure? You know, what did he do when I jumped him? Did he loop me? Did he head a certain direction? Did he go and bed down? you know, in X, Y, or Z spot, because if you can do that, and I think Andre DeQuisto, are you familiar with uh, yeah. who he is? Yep. Okay. You know, he talks about that bump and dump tactic, yep. um, you know, where you're stacking or you're bumping them from one bed to a different bed. Well, if you do that in the winter and you can physically follow every step he made to the second bed and you can mark that bed, you can kind of get play the game a little bit ahead and store that in your mm -hmm. mind and say, okay, you know, if hunters are coming in over on this spot, there's a good chance he might have relocated to that other spot over there. And you kind of already know where it is. Okay. Right. Um, but the beauty of it is what I find is when you track these deer, I'm paying not only attention to the rubs he made this year, but what you'll see is you'll see cumulative 
sign. You'll see where you're walking along the rub and you're like, wow, that's a two-year-old rub. Or, you know, that rub looks like a three-year-old or it's a signpost rub where several bucks have rubbed there. And you're kind of storing that away because I truly believe that bucks have travel routes that are just preferred travel routes that the bucks themselves use. Mm -hmm. And if you kill that buck or somebody else kills the buck, you know, chances are, especially if he was with a bachelor group in the summer, there's a pretty good probability that another buck may take over the same travel route Hmm. because there's something about that travel route, whether it's the thermals or the lay of the land or whatever that those bucks prefer. Okay. Hmm. So I start my scouting, you know, not only in season when I'm scouting gear, when I'm tracking them, but then I'll do that in January. And I should send you I showed my buddy my Onyx map when I, I zoomed out and it's, it's almost completely red because I mark every rub I find that's significant. And when I say significant, like your wrist or bigger, um, every rub, new or old, I'll mark it. And then every scrape I'll mark. Um, and if I jump a buck, I'll mark it. If I find a bed, I'll mark the bed. And so what I've noticed and what I sent you today in that video is, the pattern that I found, and I'm going to let the cat out of the bag here, so I might be hurting myself, but I'm going to tell you. Um, here in Michigan, and I don't care if it's here or northern Michigan, whenever I scout these big cuts, the best buck sign is always in the southwest corner. Hmm. And what I always find is in the northeast corner, I find rubs going into the cut because I feel that they're looping the cut. We predominantly have west and southwest winds here, especially early in the season. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when a buck sheds its velvet, there's typically a, a flurry of rubbing act- activity. And if they're with a bachelor group, then you maybe have four deer that are doing that all at once. So um, I feel that the buck and the majority of the normal wind will loop that cut to some extent, come with his nose into the wind, into the cut, bed down, and he's going to bet in the southwest corner where he can, if he has elevation, he can use where he can watch his back trail. When you track deer and you hunt deer using the tracking method, you will find out the bucks always bed 100% of the time where they can watch their back trail. They want to smell what they can't see and see where they've been. Okay. Yep. So he'll watch his back trail, but then he can smell what's coming from the southwest because what he's going to do then is before dark or after dark, depending on what his, his um, you know, personality is, he's going to stand up and he's going to walk out of his bed. He's going to defecate. So you always find a lot of droppings there. And then he's going to head over to the little further to the, towards the Southwest corner. If he wants, he's going to rub a little bit and waste a little time. And he's going to get the wind in his favor before he exits the, out into the woods there. If that's what his pattern is. So when I sent you that, um, video today where I found that buck, that dead buck was in the Southwest corner of a cut. I dropped a pin there the night before I was laying in bed. My wife was watching HGTV and I'm scrolling through Onyx maps, dropped a pin there. And I said, I'm going to go scout that tomorrow morning. And lo and behold, I go and I follow the same pattern. I get to the Southwest corner and there's a dead mature buck, you know? So what I've done is I have these all scouted out on my phone. And then when you zoom out, and you look at eight of these parcels that are exactly the same or roughly the same with these cuts, I noticed a pattern. And the pattern is the same. Majority of the rubs are in the southwest corner, some rubbing in the northeast. Directional rubs are from northeast to southwest. Beds are in the southwest corner. You know, and then I figure my stand sites from there. Um, That's how I scout. I don't want to waste a lot of time wandering 
where everybody does. I think um, deer spend 80% of their time and 20% of the cover. Right. And mature bucks spend 95% of the daylight hours laying down. So you got to try to figure out, you know, based upon where they bed, where is that little 5% window where I can hopefully get a crack at them? And I've always said this too, and people say, well, what do you mean when you say that? I've always said it has to be 90% in his favor and 10% in yours where he'll feel comfortable coming through there. Because I always kind of have to chuckle when I hear guys say, well, I found a sign and it's coming through here. And, you know, like he's always going through there on the west wind, but I set my stand up and as soon as it switches to east, I'm going to hunt the spot, right? Yeah. And so then they go climb up in an east wind and never see the buck. Well, why? Well, because no way in hell is he going to come out that way if the wind is completely different Right. Wrong because then he him. can't use the wind to his advantage. Yeah. yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. I'm so curious. what do you need to do then? I was just going to say, I wanted to ask you a quick question here because I have a mm-hmm. situation very similar because so, so this year was a year that I really prioritized on kind of scouring a lot of the public around me. And similar to, to Michigan, you know, Eastern PA, lots of pressure. So I kind of focused similarly to what you're talking about, where I really kind of focused on finding clear cuts. And I just, and I would walk through just the pure nastiness of the middle of, I found like a little key. I gave this out of the bag when I talked to Andy May a couple months ago, but it was like a little kind of strategy Mm -hmm. I found for me, at least in this area was find an area where water ingress is is going through the, the, the clear cut. So like a drainage or something like that, it, as small as it could be, it doesn't have to be big. There's has to be a place where water yeah. is gathering because eventually what it does is it pulls, it pulls somewhere in there and creates almost like a, what I call like a mountaintop swamp and it ends up killing all the trees in there. And then this like swamp grass kind of mm-hmm. grows up and then you start to find clearly like how the deer are moving through like the, through the clear cut and where their trails are kind of leading to. And I ended up finding like a bunch of bedding and stuff like that. And those, and those particular areas. So that was kind of my strategy, similar to you. But I'm curious with that Southwest thing, because that's that's really interesting. Um, do you find that that Southwest corner needs to be like, does it need to be on the leeward side of the ridge or you, or is this, you know, flat ground or, you know, because I have a situation where like one of the beds that I found was actually in, you know, I guess it's the north west corner of this one clear cut that i that i found and like there's just i have a trail camera there that i checked this summer and there are bucks in daylight every day in that general area and i know there's a there's one bed there i found a bed but there are just bucks there from i mean hardly any nighttime pictures all these pictures i'm getting of these deer are between the hours of like 7 30 a.m and like two o'clock in the afternoon like just so i know i'm up, up in their business so is there is there a kind of a method to why that southwest corner? Is there a terrain or the way the terrain sets up that creates that kind of push into that particular corner? Um, no, I think for me it's just the predominant wind. Hmm. It's just in here in this area of Michigan because we're so close to the lake. It's ninety percent of the time it's it's west southwest. You know, starting October first to about November first, and then it will switch we'll see more straight West to Northwest type winds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when I look at areas, so for example, um, you know what an eddy is in a, in a Creek or a river yep. where you have a bend in the Creek mm-hmm. and it kind of circles right there. So some of it, um, what I found too is, you know, depending on how they cut it or what butted up to the cut, when the wind 
kind of whips across there and hits the edge if it's a little bit of a southwest it almost creates an eddy in that corner okay yeah if there's any ridge structure before it gets to the cut um because let's face it most of the time you know when the state comes in and cuts a piece of ground and my guess is just because it's easier on the equipment is they try to find where i find these cuts is typically the flattest piece okay Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, if it's a really ridged or hilly spot, you know, it's pretty rare that it's cut. I just think because it's a pain in the butt to get tractors or uh, dozers and gears and, and uh, you know, skidders out of there. Yeah. But so what I find is in that southeast corner, you get some eddying. Okay. In the northeast corner, you'll get more of a straight wind because um, it has time as it goes across that cut to kind of straighten itself out again. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now we know it changes. Obviously, you'll get that errant, maybe an east wind for three or four days, you know, and then it's completely different. Then they may be betting in the center of the cut. Um, But, you know, just from tracking it and marking beds that you can see are definite beds, following buck tracks, following buck sign, that's the correlation I found. Now, is it going to be 100% in everybody's area? I think it's determined by what your, your typical wind is. Um, and I don't know, what, what do you find? What is your wind typically from September to November? Yeah. I mean, we get, we get a lot of South Southwest wind here as, as well. Um, you know, we'll get the yeah. occasional, you know, North Northeast wind, you know, usually when a front, you know, blows through is, is, is usually when we'll get, when we'll get that, but we do get a lot of South Southwest, but I'm, I'm I actually have my map up now as we're kind of talking about this, looking at this particular bedding area, and the way the timber is yep. kind of set up is, it's kind of what you're describing. And so I'm imagining the way this is set up, like that's probably where they're, where they're getting that kind of swirl is in that corner where that bed's at. Because I know just in talking to Dan Enfold about, you know, how wind will kind of, you know, use or react to um, openings in cover will create almost like a vacuum yeah. effect at these edges and stuff like that. And so I yep. think that that's kind of might be what happening in that particular spot. Um, cause I've been playing hell trying to figure out how I'm going to actually hunt this spot because it's one of those places where I know they're there. Um, I'm mm-hmm. not quite sure how I'm going to access cause you know, when a buck is bedding in a spot, there's a reason he's bedding there. It's because he feels like he's bulletproof. And a lot of times they are, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, Bingo. Yep. And, and so it's like, I've been, I've been racking my brain trying to figure out how I can get in there without getting, without getting smoked. And, uh, I haven't yep. quite, I haven't quite figured it out yet. So, well, I think. So here's my opinion on that. Um, the majority of the time, if he's, if he has a bulletproof spot, I mean, he's going to bust you, but that's just part of the game. Right. Yep. Um, and sometimes you just, you gotta like ride the edge of that envelope and just give it a whirl. Mm -hmm. But uh, as I said before, I think, you know, if if these guys set up stands and they're like, Oh man, I'll wait till an East wind and go hunt it. Well, he's not going to show up in an East wind because the reason he was using it is because it was predominantly West. And he was bulletproof exit entering and exit, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a mature buck is not, especially now that he knows hunters are in the woods and he's smelling human scent, is not going to just completely go, well, I'm just going to abandon everything and walk out that way. So what I think you got to look for is, is that 10% or maybe it's a 5% envelope where you're just close enough where the wind is heading towards him. Um, but you're just off far enough that once that he has to get within that 30 yard envelope before he's going to bust you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you just better be ready and you better be able to shoot because when he gets there, you know, and he does bust you, the jig is up, he's gone. But yeah. so that's kind of what you're, what you're hunting. You're hunting 
that small percentage of opportunity that's almost bad, but there's just barely enough good that it just might pay off. Yeah. Um, and Derek, it, it, it might be, which honestly, I never paid attention to thermals until I started, you know, listening to Dan and, mm-hmm. and those guys way back when they were blood brothers. Um, and, and the, uh, you know, Gene and Barry Wenzel talk about thermals a lot too, mm-hmm. is, you know, maybe you can only hunt that spot, literally like sneak in and climb up, you know, the last half hour when the wind dies, when you're getting that shift from, you know, day thermals to evening thermals, um, yeah. you know, maybe there's a partial ridge where you can be just enough on the backside of that ridge that he's coming out on that instead of your thermal pouring over to him, it's heading the other direction. Yeah. Um, there's, there's but, one you know, that's just it. That's, I was just going to say, I think there's two setups I might be able to try, try to try him on. So there's one that if I wanted to play it safe, which I'm, I often don't, I I'm, I'm more of a, I'm more of a go for broke guy. (laughs) A lot of times I just, you know, my whole mentality is more of, I'm going to try, especially on public. It's like, if I know where he's at, I'm going to try to go kill him because chances of him being Mm -hmm. there long-term probably aren't good because he's going to get pressured at some point. Um, but there's a community scrape that's maybe 150 yards off the edge of that, off the edge of that cut in between that cut and another cut that I also have a couple good deer that I had on, on camera there. I don't know if the one was him because it was an early summer picture and I can't tell he doesn't have enough, enough growth yet to, for me to know whether it's him or not. Um, and where he's bedded is maybe just 150 yards to the West, to the West of that. So if I wanted to play it safe, I could probably try to hunt him over that scrape, you know, at at some point here early in the season, of course I have to hunt his bed, but he likes a West wind. And that west wind that he's using is really kind of almost a crosswind for where that bed's located. And he's coming up from like the bottom, mm-hmm. like the, and this ridge isn't really steep until you get up past this cut. Then it, that's when it kind of gets steep. And then right. that west wind, and then he'll also have the thermal pool there too. So he's kind of getting the best of everything. He's got like this west wind that's kind of cutting down the ridge across him, like as a crossing wind. Then he has the thermal kind of pulling up over. And there's a, Mm-hmm. there's a drainage ditch that's right there where I hung the camera, where I've keep getting, where I've gotten, you know, all the pictures of him at, and he's having to cross that. So I feel like he's coming from like the, 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 the Northwest and like up and over uh, to, to his bed. And so I feel like I can mm-hmm. use that as the barrier and play the just off wind to where he's for sure going to bust me. If he doesn't walk through where I need him to walk through, but if he does, mm-hmm. he'll never know I'm there until an arrow slipped in him. You know, I think that right. that's probably the best best opportunity I'm going to have to try to kill him. And that that is that setup would be probably sixty, maybe seventy yards max outside his bed. Right. Well, so let me ask you this: you, you hit on something that I noticed right there. Um, you said he has to cross the drainage ditch. Yep. To get to you, um, how close is that to where he's bedded? Is that really close? Uh, where he has to cross is about. 60 yards from from his bed okay because it's just a little bit open because that's the bottom that's the bottom side of the cut where it's where he's got some just more open timber that he's heading into the cut so it's kind of at the very edge there's a there's a deep kind of like drainage that's it looks like an old stream or something like that that really just doesn't have any water running through it anymore and it's you know it's just a little terrain feature he's got to come down and cross okay i was going to say the cool thing about creeks last year we had my boy and I found this really nice, um, it was the biggest buck we've had on trail cam. He was a, he's a, he was a five by five, but he had five extra kickers. Um, wow. 
you know, for public land around here, when you get bucks that are 150 to 160 on public ground, they're, they're pretty darn good deer. Yeah. And we had him pegged. He was betting. There was an old cut that had a ridge that kind of horseshoed around the edge of the cut. So he would go into the cut. He would work his way up through the cut, and then he would bet on the lip of that ridge, right? That mm-hmm. first third where you get that thermal tunnel or the, uh, the yep. wind tunnel. Yep. Um, but he could watch his back trail. So what that buck was doing we hung a trail camera, one of these cell cams down at the creek crossing. And when I say the creek crossing, like it, this is one of those creeks that if you step in anywhere, you sink up to your nipples and mud. Right. right? Um, but, but there's like one spot that has two of these springs that come off the hill that come down there that create kind of a hard sandy bottom. And that's where he was crossing. He didn't really have another option to cross. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, of the creek, it, another steep hill went up, and then there was a big oak flat with a lot of white oak. So last year was a huge oak crop. He was bedding in the oak cut, um, a lot of raspberries, green briar, low growth, and then he was coming down. But we noticed on on the cell cam that he was waiting for the sun to dip behind the trees and that thermals to change, right, where you have the the thermals pouring down instead of rising. Because what we think he was doing is he was using the rising thermals in the evening, the last of the rising thermals to like scent check the creek crossing where he was bedded. Yep. Then he would get to his feet when they changed because he could walk down to the creek crossing and smell what was behind him. But when he got to the creek crossing, because the thermals were dropping from the oak flat, he could scent check the oak flat. I mean, yeah. what a like super bulletproof, brilliant setup, right? Yeah. 100%. But the thing he wasn't taking into account is when thermals hit those creeks because it's moving water. Yeah it actually creates kind of a wind that follows the creek. Okay. Right. Even though there might not be any wind, there was enough water rolling through the creek and there was enough of a temperature difference that when you, when you hung in a stand, like literally on the edge of the creek, you could feel a breeze coming from the creek crossing to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so nice. what we did is he took, you know, uh, chest waders and waded down the creek and climbed up. Well, um, we don't know what happened because it, any, you know, as, as most good whitetail stories go, you know, what, by the time we figured out what was going on, he vanished. We don't know if somebody put an arrow in him or if he just completely because of the pressure, because there was quite a few hunters in that section relocated mm-hmm. or what. But we never got another picture of him on any of the cameras all season. And then we still haven't got a picture of him this year. So we don't even know what happened. Um, quite frankly, he, I would think we would have found out if somebody arrowed them like it's hard to keep your trap shut about a good buck like that right yeah you typically you typically hear about that yeah but so when you mentioned the drainage there you know if there's any water flowing in the drainage that creates a little bit of a different um benefit to you that he doesn't know about the Mm -hmm. buck because he can play the thermals or the wind all the way to the creek and then he's going to cross the creek and play them again but there's probably you know, a 10 to, to 15 yard window there where your thermals and you might get a wind current that follows the creek where he feels like it's pretty bulletproof for him. Right. But it's just off enough where if you hung right there, you might be able to whack him. You yeah. Know? Yeah. It's going to be an interesting setup too, man. Cause it's, it, I, it may have to be a ground setup. It just depends when I was in there, you know, in the, in the in the spring, you know, I think there was a, like a tree I'd probably want to get into. It's going to be close quarter shot regardless because it's pretty thick, so it's not going to be any further mm-hmm. than probably ten yards. And that's why I'm thinking it may be a ground setup because I think I just wouldn't have as much debris between he and I to get a shot opportunity, and I could probably hug that drainage a little closer. 
you know what I mean? Sure. To where it's like, I can probably mm-hmm. get into the drainage almost to a degree, you know, to where it's like, if I am getting any love from any water that's in there to pull my, you know, to pull my thermal down to give me just a little bit more room, that would probably be, be my play. You know, I'm not quite sure on when yeah. I'm going to hunt that yet this year. Cause I got another mm-hmm. deer that I know where it's better there. I feel like it's going to transition. And I feel like that cut's going to be good year round just because when I did my scouting, I found that primary scrape area, that community scrape area, uh, with some does hitting it here all yep. summer long. And then there's another scrape area that I found actually in the cut. And so I know there's a lot of just like activity mm-hmm. as the season goes on in that area that I feel like I could probably get an opportunity, you know, in later October, if I, if, if I didn't get a chance to hunt it this, uh, you know, early, early right. late, late September. So, I mean, you, you mentioned cameras well, there. I wanted to ask you, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say um, something else you mentioned there. I killed the last two bucks with my bow on the ground mm-hmm. um, because they were setups where there was not a tree. And I simply grabbed one of those little, you know, three-legged tripod mini folding stools and a set of snippers and just a head net my camo and simply walked into where I was like, okay, he's going to come out right here. Or he's going to cut through here. And I sat down in the weeds and snipped, you know, a few branches out of the way and stuff and simply sat down mm-hmm. right there and shot those bucks at like 15 <laughs> yards from the ground. Um, and, and I think where we're at, um, I have noticed over the years, bucks look up. Yeah. I mean, mature bucks, I swear to God, one eye is always pointing up and one eye is always pointing yeah. down. Um, neither one of those bucks knew it hit them, you know, in both of those areas, obviously they were good bucks you know, walking through those areas and there were no trees worthy of a tree stand. So that was something else that kind of like, Hey, light bulb just came on. You know, why is the buck using this? That could have been part of the reason he was even using those spots is because there were no tree stands. So people weren't hunting it. Yeah. And I was actually going to ask you that for that Southwest corner, you know, when you're finding that, you know, the, those bucks in those, in those corners of those cuts, are there huntable trees in those places or are you also finding those are predominantly ground setup setups because uh no no typically typically where the corners are i mean there's there's mature trees once you get out of the cut okay um you know in the cut is where and when i say cuts i mean these are you know four to eight year old cuts so the biggest tree might be as big around as your calf you know out in the cut unless they select cut which they do around here and they'll leave like some white pines in that video I sent you earlier today. There's like a big mature white pine in that cut, yeah. but you could see those were not big trees by any means. There was no way you were going to hang a tree stand at any of those trees um, and have any shooting opportunity. So what I found is no, like in, and I don't know per se, you know, those mature bucks that are bedding in those cuts, you know, once guys start hanging around the outside of those cuts and leaving scent, I mean, he may be nocturnal. He may not be leaving that cut until the cover of darkness, which is one of the reasons a lot of times when I go hunt these places like that, I'll wait till it's raining. And I know people always say, well, you shouldn't hunt in the rain because it'll wash away the blood, blood trail. Um, I have seen more good bucks on their feet before dark when it's raining than I have, you know, in October at any other type of weather condition. Um, and, and I just think it does a couple of things. I think it, um, you know, hurts their ability to scent to some extent. Um, and I just think cause guys don't go in the woods and let's face it, you know, the deer, they're a master of survival. So they're going to move when they feel it's safest. And if we're seeing a correlation where they're moving in the rain, you know, bigger deer, obviously they've figured out that most hunters are like, I'm not going to go sit out in this stand in the rain and just don't hunt. So, you know, that's another opportunity you could have as a hunter, but 
I will predicate that and say, like, don't take an iffy shot. I mean, make right. sure he's broadside and you can put a, an arrow through both lungs because I have yet to double lung a deer and have it make it more than 100 yards. Um, they typically die. You know, you can typically see them from your stand when they fall over unless it's really thick cover. Right. Um, but, yeah, I, you got to look. I think for those opportunities that are just out of the norm, you know, and, and what would, you know, give you somewhat of a, an advantage. Right. And that's one of them. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I've been kind of, you know, playing with a lot more this year is just more ground setups and stuff like that, because a lot of guys, you know, are apprehensive about hunting from the ground. And, and what I've found is I've been finding more and more sign in those places, um, telling me that deer are spending time in those areas where there aren't huntable trees. And so I'm kind of prioritizing, trying to, trying to locate those, those places and, and then, and then hunt from the ground, you know, knowing that there's not yep. going to be a lot of pressure and I can get away from people that way and stuff like that. And I think there's something too the whole idea of just bad weather in general. It's one of the things, again, you know, this year and last year I prioritized some is just hunting bad weather days. So even early season, as I'd mentioned, my season comes in, you know, uh, mid or I'm sorry, mid September here in the area that I live in Pennsylvania in a special regs unit. And a lot of guys won't go out when it's warm. They'll be like, Oh, it's warm out. I'm not going to hunt today. It's like that. Those are the days I actually go out because I know, <laughs> especially if it's a Saturday and it's hot, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm like, I know that's going to keep guys in. It's going to people are going to be like, oh, the deer aren't going to move because it's warm today. That's the day that I get no pressure and can actually move and try to go find deer yep. on the ground. You know what I mean? And find where they're right. going to spend time and then set up. And so, you know, definitely that, like, do you find, is there, is there a break point with the rain? Like, is there a certain level of like drizzle or rain that, that they, that you see them move versus start to shut off and, and hunker down? No, if it's just one of those you know, steady, not an all out monsoon, um, you know, just a, just a light drizzly type of mm -hmm. thing. Um, even if there's just a little bit of wind, that's okay. Um, but yeah, or if it absolutely pours like crazy and then it just stops, that's a great time to be there too. Yeah. If you look at your, you know, your, your weather map and it looks like, okay, so if I hit the woods at six, those clouds are going to be over me, but it looks like at about seven fifteen, those clouds will be passed. Mm -hmm. and it's shooting light ends at eight o'clock, you know, get in the woods while it's raining. It's going to wash your scent away. So there's no residual ground scent, get up in your tree and be ready. Cause when that thing breaks, that deer is going to stand up. He's not going to want to lay there all wet. He's going to shake himself off. And if he feels like predators aren't out, there's a good chance he's going to move early. Yeah, exactly. I want to circle back to what you said, you know, you were talking just a little bit about cameras. So I'm just curious how you're using cameras, you know, specifically whenever you're, we were hunting big woods. Do you have a method to your, to your madness? Or are you using them to kind of yeah. cast the net to a degree to kind of, kind of squeeze down on a buck or whatever to try mm -hmm. to figure out where their core range is? How, what's your approach in using cameras? Well, so this dovetails into, you know, when you said, what's your approach on scouting where I said, okay, I'll read a map. I'll find the sign. I'll go scout the sign. I'll notate every rub scrape bed I can on the Onyx map, go home, dial out, you know, look at the, the Onyx versus the USGS, try to figure out why are they rubbing there, traveling there, so forth. But, you know, then what I'll do is I use cameras a little bit different than I think most people do. Like I was on um, Dan's site today, mm -hmm. and I noticed some people were blogging on there or making posts like, hey, just hung cameras this weekend. You guys getting any good pictures? Like um, literally all of my cameras are out of the woods. I use my cameras, you know, from like May until last week and I pull them because all I want to do is all of those spots I scouted, I saturate with cameras. 
All I want to do is determine if the buck made it and if he's a buck worth spending time to hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all I want to do. I just want to take inventory with those cameras and then get them the heck out of the woods. Because, you know, I buy the cheap cameras. I buy mm-hmm. the $40 Dick Sporting Goods Wild Game Innovation camera because I have had too many cameras stolen here on public land. When I used to run them, you know, from September 15th to November 15th, um, inevitably they would get stolen. So I said, you know what, why am I putting them out when I should be hunting and letting the camera, you know, living and dying by what that camera tells me when all I really need to do is determine if there's a buck bedding in that area, that's a buck I would hunt. I'll circle that piece. I'll put his picture. I'll print out his picture and put it in my maps. And so now I have 10 bucks that I would put an arrow in. And if I drive to a spot and there's five trucks there, I'll simply not stop. I'll drive to the next spot that's, you know, worthy of hunting, that the wind is right for the conditions. If nobody's there, I'll dive in and hunt. Um, So for me, that's how I use a camera. To me, the camera, all I'm doing is taking inventory. I'm not really, you know, I used to put them on scrapes. And like last year, we put it on that creek crossing to try to figure that buck out. Well, that was a mistake. Mm-hmm. I mean, we kind of thought he was crossing there, but I was waiting for the camera to tell me when to hunt. We should have had our bucks there hunt and we would have killed the deer, you know? Right. right. So I think too many people live and die by what the camera tells them in season and they use it as a crutch because I, I think it was um, Cody DeQuisto on one of the podcasts. He said exactly the same thing. You get to the point where you're hunting based upon what the camera tells you. Now, how do you know that a tree didn't fall over in the windstorm 10 yards away that you don't see? And instead of going through there, now they have to now divert 20 yards to the south, right? right? Yeah. So he's still going through there every night. He's just not in that, you know, 15-foot area that your camera's covering or 15-yard area. So, um, yeah, I, I found I'm a better hunter if I just take inventory with the cameras and then I put them away and I just go hunt. I yeah. think I put my brain to work. I use the terrain and the knowledge I've gained and I just go hunt. Yeah. I, I've kind of, I think, uh, I would say I'm probably 50, 50. I, I don't use a whole lot of the Intel I get during the season. Um, I usually let my cameras up year round you know, for the most part, you know, and I'll pull them and I'll just go back through and look at all the, all the inventory. Um, yeah, I kind of do something similar to you to where I know what deer are kind of in the area. Now, they're going to shift once they, once they peel velvet and stuff like that. And, and at times I do like to let my camera out things. Then I want to know who, who possibly shifted back to the area, but I'm mm-hmm. really kind of just using that to know who's there. So I know who is a potential shooter, who is, who is not, and then where I want to spend time. And then from there, mm-hmm. similar to you. And, and this is something I've picked up from guys, you know, like Cody or Dan or, or Eberhard or the, you know, these guys where it's like at that point, then I'm just, I'm hunting hot sign. Like I'm going into this area. I know there's a quality buck that's in here somewhere. And now I'm just going to yep. let the woods tell me where he's spending his time. And if I have to bump him to find him, I will. Mm-hmm. And then, because yep. I think that they have more nerve than we give them credit for, especially if they have a really solid bedding area and you kick him out once. I don't think it's, I don't think you've ruined your, your opportunities. I think what you did was you just got a really big piece of the puzzle. And now I think you probably have a better opportunity to kill him. You probably don't have any more mistakes to make with him, <laughs> but right. you know, but you now have, unequivocally where he's spending his time, um, which should mm-hmm. help give you a, a leg up is kind of my approach. Yeah. Well, you know, I think to simplify this, I think we give deer too much credit, you mm-hmm. know, because we, our brain thinks differently than theirs, you know, really all they want to do is, uh, eat, sleep and procreate. That's really all they want to do. Right. Yep. Um, 
you know, pretty simplistic brain. So my theory on, you know, when a buck finds and I scout these areas and I see successive years worth of rubs, like in these cuts, um, I know I'm not the first guy that's wandered into the cut and bumped that deer. You know, I know grouse hunters have or woodcock hunters or, you know, a coon hunter in the middle of the night or another bow hunter. Cause some of these cuts do have, you know, I'll see where a guy has an old climbing stand that he left hooked to the tree, right? He was mm-hmm. too lazy to go pull it down. Um, my theory on that is, so think about how a buck lives. A buck, you know, he'll enter that bed, he'll, he'll hook it, he'll come in, he'll watch his back trail, and he'll, sm- he'll use his nose to tell him what he can't see in his eyes to see what he can't smell. Mm-hmm. And so he'll bet there, and if he sees some, something coming, whether it's you or me or a coyote or a wolf, you know, he'll wait until he feels, okay, this is not cool, I need to bail, and he'll bail, right? Right. And if he doesn't get killed or eaten by the wolf, what just happened? You just reinforced that that was a hell of a great spot to bet, right? Yep, 100%. Because it it kept him alive. So he's going to loop back in and be like, well, that worked pretty slick. I'm going to do that again. And so I think a lot of times, you know, especially in public ground where you look at that map, like I said, and you're like, okay, that's the only thick cut, you know, in a two square square mile area. I doubt he's just going to bed haphazardly in the middle of an oak flat because that's where all these other jaybirds are walking around with tree stands and bird hunting and everything else is, is I think we overthink it. They don't. They're like, Hey, that worked well. I'm going to go back and bed down again. Right. Now, does that mean they're going to be back in there 10 minutes later? No. Like he might wander off to spot B and hang out there for a day, but he's not at spot B because it's not quite as good as spot A. And then he'll wander back in and he'll scent check it. Hey, no people, no wolf, no coyote. Cool. I'm good. I'm going to lay back down. Um, so I think part of what happens in the whitetail world is if a buck picks a crappy spot to bed, he gets killed. It's, it's attrition, right? Right. <laughs> if, if a buck, if his twin brother picked the spot in the cut and lived, it wasn't that the twin brother was any smarter. It's just he didn't get killed. Right. So you're, you're reinforcing the fact, and then he beds there the next year and doesn't get killed. And the next year, and then finally some guy like you or me wanders in, figures him out, kills him, and he's snuffed out. Um, so I think we give them too much credit that they're like us and they're like studying the situation. I think from the time they're a fawn till they're raised up, they just repeat habits that keep them alive is the right. best way to explain it. Yeah. And the ones that, you know, their habits don't keep them alive while well, they're hanging on somebody's wall or in somebody's freezer. <laughs> All right. Exactly. <laughs> now that, that totally, that totally makes sense, man. I want to circle back for a really quick second back to the cuts. Cause I was just thinking when you mentioned mm-hmm. it again, is there a certain mm-hmm. size of cut that you kind of look for in terms of acreage? Like, is there something that's a size that you're like, man, it's too small. Or is there a size where you're like, nope. no, I base it all upon how thick it is. If I walk up and I see a lot of whippies out there that are maybe, you know, 12 foot high and I see, um, raspberries and I see, we have stuff, I call it green briar. It's these vines that are as big around as your pinky that you can hardly cut with a pair of snippers that are just full of thorns. Yeah. Um, that stuff gets me excited, man. Cause I know the average guy looks at that and he's like, heck no, I'm not going in there. Right. Um, but the deer breeze right through it, like no big deal. So, yeah. I mean, I've found good sign in spots that were literally like two acres in size, you know, mm-hmm. but it's just, they were set up right where people just either paid no attention. Like, well, that spot's not big enough to hold a deer or they were just so far back in off the grid that people just didn't want to walk in that far. And it had all the right stuff for the buck to hang out and not get killed. And so he just repeated his habits. Right. Right. Okay. 
So I want to shift gears here a little bit and start talking just a little bit about strategy and how you approach hunting different times of the year. So talk to me a little bit about how you might approach early season versus pre-rut versus rut versus versus late late season. Do you have different approaches for each of those or do you kind of hunt them, you know, all kind of in a yeah. similar way? Yes, absolutely different approach. So right now, uh, based upon what the camera Intel told me all summer, you know, I'll do a quick recon of an area, but I kind of know where I think I want to be based upon the scouting I did in the sign. Mm-hmm. If it, if October 1st dawns and it's 80 degrees, which Michigan can be in October 1st, it could be 40 degrees. It could be 85, you know, um, then I might say, okay, where's the nearest water to his bedding area? Um, and focus more on figuring he's going to get up out of his bed. And the first thing he's going to do is go to water. Um, otherwise, you know, you're pretty much hunting a bedding pattern and assuming he's going to get out of his bed. Where's the nearest around me? It's acorns. Um, a lot of red Oak, a lot of white Oak would be finding the nearest acorn stand that mm-hmm. if he was just to get up out of his bed. And I do believe mature bucks are somewhat lazy. So the closest place he can go fill his belly and then go lay back down. And if he can pass water somewhere between here and there, that's even better. That's that other missing piece. That's how I would hunt October. Um, Also kind of sort of paying attention to hunt pressure, because if I've scouted, if I've tracked a buck in spot A and bumped him like in the winter and he went to spot B and I pull up to spot A and there's five trucks in the parking lot, I might just scramble over to spot B and get set up there because I'm going to assume somebody's going to bump him in the next two days and he's going to end up over in spot B right. kind of that stacking thing, I guess I, yep. I never would have called it that, but it makes sense. Um, so pretty much that way in October, as you get closer to Halloween, if there are some scrapes and really close proximity to that bedding area, uh, maybe start watching those scrapes. I've had really good luck seeing mature deer, you know, in the evening at scrapes more so than the mornings. Right. Um, and then, as we get into the chase phase, the first week, two weeks in November, if you can find a funnel between two doe bedding areas, that for me, that seems to be better than being in the doe bedding area. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just me and maybe I don't know what mistake I'm making, but if I try to set up right in the doe bedding area, I'm always getting busted by does. Like, right. you know, around here, the bedding area is small. Like there's not, it's not a robust amount of cover. And I always get busted going in or get winded from my stand. And yeah, I'll see bucks, but I always seem to do a little bit better when I back off and I'm like in the funnel between the two bedding areas. So if there's two cuts that are, say, maybe a half mile apart and there's a ridge that runs from one to the other, like setting up on the downwind side of that ridge, um, you know, a third of the way down the edge of that hill is like perfect because you'll get bucks cruising during the day Um, and all day sits. I've killed most of my mature deer from 11 to three, um, somewhere in that stretch. Um, so yeah, I would go like bedding area, bedding area to scrapes by bedding area to, um, funnels between doe bedding areas more than bucks. And then obviously our gun season completely messes everything up here. (laughs) Um, then I'll typically go back to the bedding area or to a doe bedding area that's really, really thick, assuming if a buck's with a doe, he's just going to follow her back and they're going to stay in there. Um, Then I really keep my fingers crossed that we get snow because that's when I use the tracking techniques that Todd told you about. Yeah. Um, I feel in any of these hard hunted pressured areas, once the guns start popping and they've had a full month and a half of, you know, bow hunting pressure, 
yeah. any Buckworth assault is going to be completely nocturnal. So rather than hoping I can find a stand and sit there and that he'll just get up and haphazardly walk by during daylight, I'm going to get on his track and I'm going to follow him to where he's at. I'm going to try to kill him where he's at. I truly think when I look back at the deer I've killed tracking, for the amount of time you invest in a track. So let's say I cut a track crossing the road at 7 a.m. For the amount of time you invest on the track to having an opportunity at a mature deer, is like 90% greater than the amount of time you sit in a tree stand. It's not 300% greater. I don't know what the factor is, but you know, he's in front of you. You're on his track. He's not moving. He's stationary. And every step you take, you're closer to him. You just got to know when to slow down and really start peeking. And let's face it. If he's a really good buck and he survived all these years, chances are he's going to see you before you get to him and he's going to blow out. Right. Right. But, if you go slow enough, you can get a shot at him when he's exiting the cover too, because he doesn't really want to just haphazardly blow out of the cover because then he's running through territory that might have, you know, 15 red coats posted in there too. So in some respects, I think maybe they'll hold tight a little bit longer because they're used to some pressure. Um, so I would track if I had snow during gun season and muzzleloader, our gun season goes November 15th to 30th. And then muzzleloader starts up like December 5th and goes to like the 20th. So if we have snow, I'm tracking. I'm not going to waste time sitting. I'm going to go out and find tracks or I'm going to hike into those areas, those bedding areas I knew about, loop the outside of those cuts, look for his track going in or exiting and just get on a track. Um, You know, I don't honestly do a lot of hunting after Christmas. And I know people say, man, like Christmas to like January 1st. You know, I think on private ground where you have food plots and standing beans or standing corn, I think if you're on private ground, that's probably a phenomenal time to hunt. I think it's a really, really tough time to hunt the big woods that I hunt because those bucks are simply at that point in time, they're run down. They're bedded most of the time. They're so scared to death and nocturnal that they're only getting up after dark. And I just find that's a really low percentage time for me to hang out in the woods and freeze to death. And by then, honestly, I'm burnt out. And mama's like, hey, it's Christmas. You know, you've hunted since October 1st. Right. It's Christmas, hang with the family, watch some football, and that's what we do. Yeah, no, I hear you. And, and that's kind of been the same experience that I've had with late season. You know, I have we have some family farm property and stuff like that back toward Pittsburgh, and so we usually go back to visit for Christmas, and that's usually about the time I'll go hunt with my father-in-law or my dad or whatever. And that's basically like the late season hunting I'll do because, you know, there'll be some opportunities there. If I still have a buck tag, it's like I kind of know where they might might be just from prior experience. And then when I get back to my place, it's like I'll still hunt in the late season. But really, what I'm doing, in all truthfulness, is I'm taking the I'm taking the bow for a walk, and I'm already starting my scouting for the next season. You know what I mean? Like I'm, yep. you know, I'm willing to dive into places and bump deer around and just try to start to get my learning started for the for the uh, following season. But I want to go to your early season, like your October time frame, maybe even early October time frame, because you're talking about hunting, you know, in and around those, those bedding areas or, or, or beds and so forth. How aggressive are you when it comes to setting up in those areas? I know when you were talking about the doe bedding, you know, you've found that getting right up in the bedding has not been the best kind of strategy for you that you've, you've tended mm-hmm. to get busted by does and you've had more luck kind of sitting on the fringes of it and kind of playing the, the funnel between the two or the, or the pathway between two, two bedding areas. But in the early part yeah. of the year, whenever they're maybe not moving as much, you know, they're staying bedded maybe a little bit longer and you're really trying to play that buck getting up out of his bed and making a move to, 
whether it's a destination food source or whether he's getting up and just kind of munching on some acorns that might be laying close by to his bed. How close are you pressing into where you think he might be bedded and how aggressive are you? It depends on the thickness of the cover and how quiet I can be. If I feel like I could get within, you know, 75 yards and, and be quiet, um, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a whirl. The, the problem is, you know, we can't help it. I mean, you sneeze, you know, you drop a climbing stick, um, you know, you make some noise. Um, I figure if you make any noise getting in like that, like you just diminish your chances of seeing them by a tremendous amount. Um, so, you know, I think like a hundred yards is probably, I don't like to probably get any closer than that. Um, Mm -hmm. just because, yeah, I just, you know, if I don't get them tonight, um, chances are if he comes through there and he smells where I came in, I'm probably hosed anyways. Right. Um, you know, he knows he's being hunted, but I don't know. I, I just, I don't want to like, I don't want to screw myself up. You know what I mean? It's almost like I don't have enough confidence in my own ability to just say, you know, like I, I know in fault, um, on some of his videos and stuff, it's like shit, like I climbed up and I was within 40 yards of the buck or whatever it was. Like, I just don't, personally feel like I could get that close and not screw something up. I don't have enough confidence in my own ability. Um, when I was younger, man, I could climb like a cat and be stealthy. And, but I mean, I'm 47 years old. I've had a broken neck, two shoulder surgeries. I got a bad disc in my back. Like this old cat can't put steps <laughs> three feet apart, climb like a cat. I mean, right, it's just, right. which I think is part of the reason I've started to look for more ground setups too. Um, but yeah, I think if you could get within a hundred yards and just, be quiet, you know, be patient. And if you're on, you know, where that rub line comes in and out of there and you're kind of sitting quiet and nobody else has screwed it up for you yet. I mean, I think that's um, probably as far as I want to press that envelope, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that actually might be a good reason as I'm, as you're talking about it, that might actually be a good reason for me to hunt that, that bed set up from the ground, just because Mm -hmm. the best place to hunt him, if I'm going to hunt him in that bed is probably about 60 yards from it you know, which is getting really yeah. close. And that actually for me is way closer than my comfort zone. Like, but unfortunately mm-hmm. it's like, if I'm going to hunt him in that bed and not try to pick him off at a scrape or something like that, like that's really the only setup you got, you know what I mean? Like that, yeah. that's that, or you're going to play the scrape and hope he comes by to check it. Um, right. And that might even be more incentive for me to hunt it from the ground because I just kind of remove, if I can make it in there that quiet, <laughs> you know, I, I just reduce the opportunity of making noise from climbing. If I just don't climb. You know, cause yeah. I don't oh. need to see very far because it's like where he would be coming out of his bed, where his bed is at. Like I can see up to that almost to like, not to his bed, but I can probably see within 25, 30 yards of his bed, like where the timber just sure. kind of like cuts it off where you can't see through there any, any longer. So I would see him coming regardless from wherever I would, from wherever I would set up. Um, mm-hmm. and so that, so getting off the ground isn't necessarily an issue from, from that standpoint. And I might just do myself a, a solid by not, you know, increasing the chances of making, making any noise, even if I don't make noise, just like boots scraping up against the bark or whatever, you know what I mean? Right. Right. Well, and people don't realize this too. Um, it's one thing when it's daylight and you get in there, like if you're going to hunt them in the evening and you know, you creep up, you know, when it's perfectly daylight and you're all set up, but you know, what happens if darkness falls and he's still in that bed 60 yards away, or you assume he is and you haven't heard him leave, now it's a different ball game when you got to climb out of that stand. And if you're taking your stuff out, which you're supposed to in Michigan here, unless mm-hmm. you're chaining it, locking it, and putting your name on it, 
you know, um, I think you make three times as much noise when you take your stand down and leave the woods at night as you do, obviously, getting in. So that's where when I started hunting those ground setups, I'm like, okay, I'm carrying a lot less crap with me. I got a fanny pack with a head net and gloves, you know, my release in there, a flashlight, my knife, my tags. And I got a, a pair of snippers and I got a little tiny three-legged stool. And I'm going to like the beauty of that too. Let's say you're up in the stand and the wind's perfect and everything. And all of a sudden you get that last half hour wind shift, right? Mm-hmm. If you're up in that tree stand and you get that half hour wind shift, you are like, oh crap, it was hitting me in the back of the neck. Now it's in my left shoulder. He's going to win. me. If you're on the ground and you, you see that happen and whether you're using milkweed or a puffer, I mean, you could quietly grab your stool and stalk, you know, 20 yards to your left and set up there. Yeah. You know, that is, that's the beauty of being on the ground. And when it's, when the ball game's over and it's dark, you know, you grab your stool and you stalk out as quiet as you can. You don't have to take a bunch of crap down. So, you know, quite honestly, I look for more ground setups now than I ever have before, just because I think I'm a more effective hunter that way, because I'm not married to like, okay, that's the tree and I have to be in that tree. Yeah. Well, maybe the setup where the 10% kill zone is, is 30 yards to the right here. And it's that little bramble bushes. I got to just snip a couple branches and, you know, slide up under. It. Yeah. So, um, as we're talking about it, the more I'm thinking about it, the only way I think I might hunt off the ground in that spot is if I feel like it would might buy me a little bit more of a wind advantage would be the only reason mm-hmm. I would maybe do it in there. Other than that, like, I think I'm almost convincing myself as we sit here that I'm going to hunt it from the ground <laughs> Yeah. for a, for a bunch well, of, well, I mean, let's face it. Like, it's not cool, right? It's cool to be the dude that you know, has the, the newest sticks and the lightest stand and, mm-hmm. you know, the coolest camo and go in. But like, honestly, the last few bucks I killed, it was like a, you know, $14 Walmart trifold stool and eight pair of, $8 pair of snippers, a flannel shirt, you know, a baseball cap and a head net and walking in with my bow and blue jeans. Cause they don't see your legs if the grass is high enough and just plopping down. Like, right. you know, I didn't look cool, but it was super effective. You, <laughs> you, looked, you looked super cool dragging that deer out though. I'll tell you that. Right. <laughs> right. They're like, they're like, man, look at that guy. That guy got super lucky. Right. He isn't even wearing camo. Right? Like, yep, yeah, he, he did. He probably, even, <laughs> he probably even pumped gas before he walked in there. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Well, hey, man, we've been, we've been, well, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say just real quick, since you're on the subject, um, you know, every time I'm on a podcast, it seems like to to always come up here is like, Hey, what do you do about scents? Um, I I honestly, like I use the same tide detergent for all my crap, you know, that I use for my everyday clothes. Um, you know, I might spray the bottoms of my boots with some scent killer or whatever, but I truly believe the white tails nose is way more superior than we could ever fathom. Um, you know, I just play the wind and I just figure, Hey man, it's like, it's like a sports game. There's rules for both teams. And you know, if we both play within the rules and I'm the winner, then it was my day. And if we both play within the rules and he wins, it was his day. And right. I can't completely eliminate sense. And I'm not going to waste a bunch of time trying to do it. I'm just going to, you know, use what I figure is a good entry trail and a good setup. And if he wins, he wins, but that's what hunting's all about. Right. You know, yeah. I'm not, uh, not going to kill myself trying to be scent free because I know I can't. So. Yeah, no, that's a great analogy. That's a great analogy. It's like we're both playing by the same set of rules. I will say it's like you know I've I in the past have been neurotic about scent control and stuff like that, and probably in the past two ish years I've I've relaxed a lot. Now I, I do take some precautions. You know, it's like I I try not to. All my hunting stuff stays in a tote. I wash it before the season, and other than that, that's probably about. And I take a shower before I 
before I go out to try to get any, you know, funkiness off me before I head out. And that's about the extent of it, you know, anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I don't get to, it used to be much more, um, strict than that. But what I found is I think actually my strictness kind of went away as my confidence in playing the wind grew. As I started kind of being able to play the wind more effectively and doing it more consistently, um, I've worried less and less about what my, Mm -hmm. what my scent situation was. Um, well, if, if you've done your scouting and you have a pretty, not going to say bulletproof setup, but you know where he's betting and where he's going and where he's traveling, you know, you can kind of almost eliminate that factor or mm-hmm. a large percentage of that factor because you kind of know those things. You know how the thermals work. You know how the wind works um, versus the guy that's just going in and saying, well, I think he's betting in there and I think he's coming out somewhere here. So I'm just going to climb up this tree and see what happens. Well, heck, yeah. In that case, man, you, you better be living in a bubble because you're <laughs> not playing. You know, he has all the the, the rules in his favor at that point in time. Yeah. Um, so really, I think, like you say, it's confidence. If you scout and you know where you're going to set up, why you're setting up there, and where you feel the deer's coming and you're confident about it, like when that arrow blows through his lungs at, you know, 15 yards from the ground, man, it's going to be the coolest rush you've ever had in your life. Yeah, man, I I, I, I totally hear you. Cause I think it's one of those things, too, when people think about hunting beds, too. You know, they, they just think about, I think a lot of times they just think about the aspect of, knowing where the deer's at to try to kill him, where it's like the more and more I think about it, you know, and as I've been, you know, as I grow as a hunter, it's less and less about really the shot opportunity. Cause that's the end result. It's more and more about knowing where he's at. So I know what I'm capable of getting away with, you know, is, right. is, is more the game is more the game because I, you're right. Like a lot of guys will know or girls or whomever will know like, Hey, this is a general bedding area. And there's so many people out there that are hunting that way where it's like, I think they're in here and they're just hunting on a whim, you know? And look, if you want to get out and you want to hunt, I'm not, I don't discourage anyone. I don't say you have to know everything to go hunt. Like, please go out and do it. And if if you get your rocks off that way, then more power to you. But if you're a person who's going like, well, why is it I keep getting busted or I'm not seeing the deer I want to see when I, when my trail cameras, for example, or my scouting has told me that they're in this area it's because you're setting up wrong or you're using your Intel incorrectly. You know what I mean? And that Mm -hmm. I think is like Mm -hmm. one of the biggest learning curves is like finding the bedding area or the bed isn't necessarily because you're going to kill it in the bed. It's because now you know how to set up strategically to give yourself an opportunity. You know, that's the big difference. Yeah. And you're not going to, you know, it's still a low percentage because you're still hunting like the king of the game species on his own turf at his terms. So it's still a low percentage that you're actually going to kill them or see them. But, I mean, when it all comes together and you did your homework, man, it, it sure sure makes you feel good. You know, it's one you can cherish. Yeah, for sure, man. Well, hey, man, we've been doing this for about an hour and a half, buddy. I want to be sensitive to your time, let you get back home with the with the family. But before I let you go, let folks out there know where they can find out more about you, if they can follow you on social media and uh, follow along with you this season. Yeah. Um, so Todd has the Facebook site. Uh, that's Misty River um, Trackers. Um, you know, we're on Facebook, we kind of hang out and share ideas and banter with folks, uh, www.oldschoolwhitetails is our site. Uh, we're revamping it. I haven't loaded this year's trail cam picks and I don't even have all of last year's picks on there. Cause Todd and I were up in Canada. I have to put some of those on, but that's where we try to hang, you know, trail cam picks. Uh, I have, I used to do some outdoor writing. So there's some articles that were in magazines on there. There's some video 
Um, we should be dropping some more video on that pretty quick here too. So really that would, that would probably be it. I mean, if you want to connect with me personally, um, if you live in Michigan here or wherever, um, I, it's a family Facebook page. So it's Troy Spooner family on Facebook. Uh, there's a little bit of everything, some hunting, fishing, family, um, you know, just good stuff on there. So yeah, that's probably the best way to do it. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on, buddy. I look forward to talking to you throughout the season, see how your season's going. And I'll, uh, if, uh, if I can get her done on the ground, man, I'll be sure to send you a picture. Hey, I'm going to predict that you will send me the picture. Cause I want, I want to, uh, connect with you and get the story, but, um, give awesome. it a whirl, man. I think you'd be surprised. Awesome. Awesome, man. I appreciate you, man. Thank you for coming on. All right. Absolutely. Great time. We'll definitely do it again. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And hell, while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there too. I'd be super appreciative if you do those few things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Maven Optics. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace microdosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.